It's my pleasure to introduce Africa.com Chairman and CEO, Teresa Clark. Thank you. Thank you very much, Soku. And I'd like to welcome all to Africa.com's third webinar in the series of Crisis Leadership for African Business Leaders. We are particularly pleased to have so many people from around the world today. We have participants today from 123 countries around the world, 46 countries on the continent of Africa. Among the other participants who are with us today, we have CEOs from some of Africa's largest corporations. We have CEOs, managing directors, and C-suite executives from medium and small size enterprises across the continent, leaders from many academic institutions, including Harvard, including Yale, Oxford University, University of Edwardesrand, Lagos Business School, Swarthmore Business School, among many other fine universities throughout the world. Just to give you a little bit of a flavor of how far afield this group is today, so you have a sense of who you are sitting next to, we also have with us today the head of the South Sudanese small business community in Australia. We have today with us from France, the CEO of Airbus's military division. We have many people throughout the world who have an interest in Africa's fate and are concerned about the impact of COVID-19 on both the people, most importantly, and the economies of Africa. If you've been with us previously, you know that we have been very privileged to have many of our friends join us. Today is no exception. I'd like to start with the challenge that we're looking at. I'd also like to give you a sense of what you, all of our participants are thinking about. And I've gone through all of the thousands of comments that you have written about what concerns you most about COVID-19. There is a slide that I'd like to share with you that speaks to what it is that we are most concerned about on this call. And I think that it captures the conversation that we are going to have today. One person on this phone wrote in, I am concerned not so much about myself, but about our people. I can eat, but how will the area boys survive without their daily hustle? If they are hungry, they will do what any person might do not to starve. They will steal and do so violently if that is what comes between living and dying. The US took lessons from Europe, which saw the virus a few weeks ahead of them. And still, despite the similarities between Western Europe and the US, look what happened in America. How can Africa know how to flatten our curve? We are anxious to go back to our hustles, but what are the costs in our environment? Have we been smart in our policies or have we been overly cautious? Only time will tell. So I think that this was a particularly appropriate quote from one of the participants today, because this is the very set of questions that we are going to address. 21 years ago, I was privileged to be asked to speak at the Harvard Business School Africa Business Conference, the inaugural conference in 1999. And there I met a fellow speaker and his wife. And today, it's, there's some tremendous poetic justice in the fact that Hakim Bello Osagi and his wife, Maima, have been instrumental in developing this panel. Anything that I guess relates to Harvard, business, and conference seems to bring us back together. I'd like to thank Hakim for all the work that he has done. In this case, I have invited my friend, Hakim, and he has invited his friends. So this panel was organized by Hakim of his relationships, including the president of Ghana, President Akufo Addo, who we are particularly pleased to have with us today. Because the president is with us live, I am not going to delay things any further. Hakim. Uh, Teresa, thank you very much for that introduction. 
um, I will dispense with ceremonials. Um, I'll also dispense with context and background because I believe you have all been inundated by all of that, by Al Jazeera, Sky, or national TV stations. And if you haven't understood the context by now, I'm not sure that this webinar will solve that problem for you. Um, I will instead invite you all on a journey that I want to take you on this afternoon. Naturally, we are going to go first to Accra, Ghana. Africa's first independent state, where all my in-laws come from. And it is the country that on a per capita basis has, has produced the best testing results in Africa. And I think it is clear to everybody that testing is at the heart of the solution to this problem. We'll have a conversation with President Nana Akufu-Addo, its very distinguished president, and we'll understand from him what was on his mind, how was he approaching these issues, and what has he been trying to do about it. From Accra, Ghana, we will travel on to New Haven, and as a Harvard man, I'll pay my respects to Yale by asking a Yale professor who has done a tremendous amount of research work on all of these issues, physical distancing, lockdown, has done work on the kinds of economic policies that are required to get the economies going in these very harrowing times. From his place, from Yale, we'll then head to Kaduna, Nigeria, a provincial capital where we'll be visiting uh, Nasser El Rufai, who has, who has been on the front line of the battle against the coronavirus in two aspects. First, he got the virus himself, testing positive, and then he got cured, has tested double negative twice, and is now okay to talk to us. Being on that front line, he is addressing the problems of a relatively poor state with very little resources and how we, he combats that. From Kaduna, we then head out to Nairobi, Kenya, where we meet Amandla Oku Ombaka, probably the cleverest person on this panel, uh, in her 30s, prize winner at Harvard Business School and the Harvard School of Government, Yale undergraduate, and she has spent the last couple of months doing a lot of work on the impact of the coronavirus on the poor and on the vulnerable. And what we want is the benefit of her studies on what should we be doing about the problem and how can we rely on the international community and for what assistance. I will then sum up after a Q&A about the, the key takeaways we have from this session and then take us back to the key question at the very beginning of this series, which is the issue of leadership. And then we go back to New York and Teresa says goodbye to all of us. So let me begin. I'm in Ghana, Flagstaff House. President Akufo-Addo, if I can greet you specially as an, as as an in-law, Akwaba. <laughs> and now, can I ask you four simple questions? President Akufuado, 
What did you see before you? What did you do about it? Why did you do what you did? And how is it going? Okay. First of all, I'm very happy to be part of this uh, event. And I want to thank you, Hakim uh, Bello Sage, for the opportunity to be part of it. Um, I think right from the beginning, when uh, the pandemic broke across the world, and particularly, of course, in our country, it appeared to be clearly much more than just a health, public health threat. Its socioeconomic implications were evident, at least from the way we saw it here in Ghana, from the very word go. So the most important decision that was taken right at the beginning was to look at this matter as an all Ghanaian matter, whereby all the stakeholders, whether religious, uh, political, civil society, business, traditional leaders, would, would all have to come together with government because it was not going to be possible for government on its own to resolve the issues involved, to come together on a consultative basis to find a way forward. So that is, that is the, the, the first thing that I saw. And then beyond that came the need, first of all, to establish a legal framework for dealing with the matter because our own laws um, were relatively inadequate. And therefore we had to work with parliament to establish a legal framework for doing this, which essentially has been the establishment of emergency powers under the restriction, the imposition of restrictions act, and then move from there to the institutional vehicle. I thought that right from the beginning, it was necessary to pull the resources of government, as well as of the experts we have in our country, both scientists, economists, public health and medical officials, to put them all together in the task force, which is headed by a very distinguished public health official, a former deputy director general of uh, the WHO uh, organization, to be the spearhead for confronting this. Uh, so that is what, those are the, what the things that I saw. Um, the what the doing was after assembling the institutional and legal basis for action was to look at how quickly we can mobilize our system to do the key things, which continue to be at the heart of our strategy. Tracing, testing, and treating. That is what has brought us where we are, whereby we've been able to identify considerable, uh, considerable, but in relative terms, the population of people who are infected, who have now been put uh, in, in isolation and treatment centers, and whose contacts are the, are the object of the enhanced tracing that we're going through here in Ghana. It's been a difficult exercise because this is proving to be an extremely expensive ex enterprise, uh, not budgeted for, but having to find uh, the resources to meet not just the public health 
hazard, but also the social and economic implications of it. We know, for instance, that the economies of our country, and Ghana is no different from most of the economies of, of Africa, are heavily dominated by informal enterprises and informal workers who are essentially daily rated workers, if you like, in, in conventional Western terms. Uh, the people who have to go out on a daily basis to look for, 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 for their wherewithal to keep their families going. And they are the dominant element in the labor force, the dominant element in the, in the e economic structure of our country. So whatever design, whatever policy that had to come out of it, had to take them very much into consideration. It meant also that we had to identify very quickly one or two key factors. One, the recognition that the initial importation of the virus into Ghana was essentially foreign-led. Travelers, both Ghanaians and foreigners who came into Ghana, who brought the virus into, into the country. And therefore, quarantining, if you like, the country from the, the importation of the virus became priority number one. We move very quickly from measures to de dealing with uh, travelers coming from the then epicenters of Asia and Europe to a blanket quarantine of the country, which required that, especially at the moment when we were imposing the measures, that everybody who came into Ghana at that moment had to be mandatorily quarantined and tested turned out to be a very felicitous decision on our part because the weekend when the measures were put in, which was over a month ago, that very weekend, over a thousand people came into Ghana who were mandatory quarantined and tested. 10% of them turned out to be positive. And you can imagine the implications for the country if that 10% had been allowed to, to get into the population. So we were able to uh, isolate them, treat them, and the overwhelming majority of them are now back back with their, with their families because they've been tested positive. So the identifying where the key elements were in the, in the spread of the virus was very important. Then the measures that were put in to try and contain, slow the spread are the ones that, 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 that I've already alluded to. We then also took the very important decision that we had to find some way to limit the impact on the most vulnerable sectors of our society. Once again, difficult decision to, uh, to, to implement because of one, financial constraints, and secondly, institutional weapons that were available for being able to reach out to these vulnerable communities. But we made a, a good fist of it. We went, worked, and it's been one of the key aspects of our, our approaches that we have found that uh, Parliament very receptive to working with the executive in trying to design policies that would enable us to, to, to look at this. So the passage of monies that were available to government were relatively uh, agreed and acted upon by the parliament. As it, so we, were, we had also a period when we found it necessary to isolate the two main centers of the, of the virus in Ghana, which is the capital Accra, for obvious reasons. If the travelers were the people who brought it in, the capital would be the obvious place where it would then spread. So we had a period, nearly a month, three weeks, 
where Accra and then Kumasi, which is the second city of our country, were the center, were the uh, areas which we, as it were, closed down for a period in order to see how the virus traveled in those two cities. And after three weeks, we were satisfied that we had a good understanding of the movement of the virus so that we could then remove the restrictions on movement in these two cities, but continue with the strategy of tracing, testing, and treating. So there's where we are. We've, we've been able to, to test over 100,000, I think something like 100, nearly 110,000 people. Uh, altogether, uh, some, the numbers of people who have been the object of the tracing is somewhere around 120 odd thousand. So I think that by the end of today, that will be the figure that would have actually be tested. And out of it, consistently through the period of, of the testing, we have seen that the positivity rate, that is the numbers of people who have turned out to be positive in the population sampled and tested, has remained very consistent and constant, around about 1.5% of the population. Fortunately for us also, the deaths have been relatively small, if not if you like, insignificant. Not the deaths of any uh, are insignificant to those in fact, but in, in, within the larger context of that, I think we've reached about 18 people so far. These are relatively small numbers. And virtually all of them, um, the information I have is that all of them are the result of some sort of comorbidity, the underlying health issues with all those who have been identified as having uh, died as a result of being affected also by the, by, by the virus. So that's where we are. We have a number of somewhere like 1,671 who have uh, been tested. The overwhelming majority of them, 1,400 plus, are in fact uh, responding to treatment, doing well. They are moderate, uh, in some cases, without any symptoms at all. And um, six critically in critical condition who are being uh, looked up in the hospitals. Our main concern has been to see what we could do to prevent sickness. As you can imagine, the public health system of our country is relatively weak. I mean, in, in comparative terms of West Africa, it's touted as one of the best because we have quite a developed health insurance scheme. But when you look at the facilities and the spread of its infrastructure, um, a large number of sick people will pose a major challenge to the health system. So the emphasis has been to, as much as possible, go out there, look for those who may be infected and deal with them so that we don't translate them from being infected to becoming sick. And then, of course, those who are sick who are dealing also extract the population of those who are sick. It's been a, a very challenging exercise. We have said to ourselves that as much as possible, we should always look at the Ghanaian specific situation. Yes, we, we are all witnesses, the, the medium we're on now, and television and all of that makes it possible today to sit in a crowd and see what's going on all over the world. 
and, and, and look at the various examples. The methods that have been used in Europe, we've seen what has gone on in Spain, in Germany, in Italy, in England, we've seen also the American response as well as the original Chinese response. But we think that it's very, very important for us, and our scientists keep telling us that too, that we maintain an African and Ghanaian focus on how to go forward and, and, and try and contain this virus. In so doing too, of course, we can never forget the critical need of finding ways also to maintain the integrity and the viability of our economy. And then economy was to collapse. It would only co uh, complicate our ability to find the resources to deal with the virus. So side by side, it's a balance that is being struck all over the world, the balance between livelihoods and lives. We have to continue to try strive that, uh, to strive to, to maintain that balance. So I hope, I hope it's been, I have in my own manner, been able to respond to all your questions. Very much so, very comprehensively indeed. Um, if I may now turn to Professor Mushfik Mubarak, we have heard from a decision maker, a decision maker who very much stands at the very top of the government structure in Ghana. And now we want to go to you, a university professor, who's done a tremendous amount of research the solutions that have been proffered have been lockdowns, physical distancing, um, how we need to delay uh, peak time, how we need to, 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 to smooth things over uh, in order for the medical system to be able to accommodate a large number of cases. We've also heard a lot about economic stimulus. Could you please provide us with the research findings that you have come to about the costs and the benefits of those policies as pertain to the continent of Africa or countries that have similar demographics and similar economic situations like Bangladesh, Pakistan, and India. Uh, so thank you, Hakim, for the invitation. Thank you, Teresa. Uh, it's my pleasure to be here. And I just, before I start talking about research, I just wanna say that uh, it was so refreshing to hear from uh, President Akufado. Uh, you know, I live in the United States now and such clear-eyed leadership uh, that we're seeing from him. It's fantastic mm -hmm. to see the coherence with which he spoke about all aspects of the problem. It's amazing something that we are actually missing in the United States right now. What I'd like to tell you a little bit about, I'm gonna actually end up echoing a lot of what he, what he said. Um, as a researcher, I think about these problems rigorously and it turns out, um, it's not a surprise, I guess, that he's been selected to govern a country uh, because he's sort of taken all my thunder. Um, he, he's already doing all the things that I would, uh, I would recommend. Now, uh, so I'll go through uh, a couple of, um, couple of slides and, and for that I'll, I'll try to do two things in the next 10 minutes. So first I'll try to answer Hakim's questions directly, which is how should low-income countries, how should the African continent relative to high-income countries, how should we be thinking about this problem differently, if at all, and if so, why? Okay. So I'd like to make that logic very clear. And second, I'd like to discuss some policy proposals that I think are the sensible sort of common denominator ones that we can all agree on that are particularly um, needed for uh, low-income settings. So, so with those two things in mind, let me move to my uh, first slide um, where I'm showing you uh, two graphs. Okay. Uh, so I want to talk about why is it that even though the West, so um, I'm going back to the topic of, the, uh, of this panel, this is not the West, so why should we not be following the West? 
So if you were to take even the Imperial College model, this very influential model that helped devise the policies in the UK and the United States, right? And you were to just put in the numbers that come out of Africa, Asia, uh, numbers in low-income countries, you actually end up getting a very different answer. You shouldn't, you don't get the same policy prescription of broad-based lockdowns that you get for, for Europe or the United States. And there, there are three reasons for this. Reason number one is that our demography is very different. Right? So there are, um, in low fertility nations, there are a lot more elderly people in, 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 uh, in the Western world. And therefore, we know that this virus is also a lot more dangerous for the elderly. Right? And therefore, they should be um, uh, thinking very, very carefully about how to, how to protect that population. Now, in, in low-income countries, uh, we have a very different demographic structure. Only 3% of the population are about the age of 65 compared to 18% in high-income nations. Right? And the second uh, big difference is that, you know, all this social distancing and flattening the curve we heard about right from the beginning in Sky, Al Jazeera, in CNN, et cetera, right? That's valuable if you can flatten it and extend and delay infections so that the, um, uh, the health system capacity does not get overwhelmed. Now, in settings where, as the president already spoke about, health system capacity is very low to begin with, delaying infections is not that helpful because if it turns out that we don't have ventilators uh, that, uh, that can um, benefit people in you know, three months from now uh, in, say, remote rural areas, then it doesn't matter if, if people are getting sick today versus three months from now. So given that the benefits are smaller, we also have to then think about what are the costs that we're imposing on society? And for that, I'll move to my next slide. What are the costs that we're imposing on society to... Um, uh, in order to social distance, right? And that cost is that economic livelihoods are at risk, right? So, you know, I, I love the quote that Teresa talked about right at the beginning uh, from, a, from a participant, right? That I'm okay, but what about others, right? So we are all sitting here, the, you know, all the panelists, as well as those of you who are listening in, we're in relatively privileged positions, maybe sitting at home in front of a computer screen, I'm getting my job done, my livelihood is not at risk. But as the president eloquently spoke about, what about the informal sector workers? What about, um, what about day wage laborers, right? So if I have a day wage laborer who is reliant on that day's earnings or that week's earnings to feed uh, his or her family, right? I can't ask him or her to stay back and stay at home for a week when the risk is not that they might not get some entertainment, the risk is that they might go hungry, right? So we have to think about those uh, those risks. And these are no, no longer hypothetical risks. So one of the things we started doing in Bangladesh and Nepal with our team at, uh, at YRISE, and uh, at the bottom corner, you'll see a website address. If you want the underlying data, you can find it there. So one of the things we started doing was we started getting the data right away. And, um, and what you now see is from these data is that people are at, um, are at, are at very large risk. So this is case, this is in Nepal, where we've been tracking people for the last 12 months. So you see some variation, look at the bottom left corner, you see some variation in, uh, over the seasons on, on how much work people get. And then if you look at the lockdown line, right, you see that, that the hours work is 66% lower, even relative to the lean season or the hungry season in that country, okay? Food, food insecurity has increased substantially. So now the people's worries about food seem uh, uh, just as bad as what, uh, what it is during these lean hungry seasons. Right? So I'll move to the next slide. Um, so uh, 
you know, the point here is that there are these income shocks we have to worry about. We also have to worry about, a, and, and food security, but we also have to worry about a whole bunch of other things, right? So for example, lockdowns, we now know from data in Pakistan, data in India, that it is leading to women not going in to uh, healthcare facilities for delivery, right? And we know from a lot of other research that that's very risky, right? We might end up causing a lot of unintended deaths, right? Just from the unintended consequences, indirect consequences of, of lockdowns. There are vaccination delays. We don't want measles to reappear. So we're worrying about the R0 of uh, COVID-19, which is about two or three, right? The R0 for measles is between 12 and 18. It's a much more uh, contagious disease, right? Uh, so if you move to the next slide. Uh, so now I just want to spend a few minutes talking about what I think are sensible policies that we really need to uh, get behind, right? So first one is that regardless of what type of social distancing policy we end up adopting for any given country, given our benefits and cost calculations as the president has done for Ghana, we are doing for Bangladesh, right? Regardless of the policy chosen, we really need to get social benefit transfers and money and support to the poor very quickly. And that's not an, that's easier said than done because many of many of the countries where we work, I work in Bangladesh uh, and the countries uh, in Africa, that we don't have the infrastructure already in place and ready to get money in the hands of people quickly. How do you target uh, the poor? How do you identify who needs support, who are facing the largest shocks, right? How do you then get money to them safely and directly? Those are the those are the challenges that we must work on. As and as the president said, we must build coalitions between the private sector, maybe cell phone companies, mobile service providers, who have a lot of data on who's poor, right? Uh, or who can make inferences about who's poor just because they, you know, now these days we have. Uh, the one technology that's in the hands of everybody is a mobile phone, right? And also when we do social distancing, we need to target that well, right? So for example, while if we want to allow people to move out, it should be solely for the purpose of their economic livelihood. We still need to ban religious and social gatherings. So problems we've had in Bangladesh, in Nigeria, in Indonesia, in Pakistan, is that there might be central directives telling people don't go to mosques, right? But it, these, these things are not easy to enforce in remote rural areas. You really have to get the community involved in, uh, in enforcing these bans, right? Uh, and if people do, must go out, one of the things that we know from data that's really, really effective is that they must be wearing masks, because not only because it protects them, but it's protected for others, right? And, uh, and of course, if some people are going out, others, you know, in multi-generational families living in the same house, there will be other people who are elderly, who are vulnerable. But this is a case where I think governments can solve all problems. We really need to enlist the help of other institutions like the family, right? To figure out for themselves, each family figures out for themselves how to protect the vulnerable. I could go to the next slide. Um, and then uh, for, uh, or sort of behavior change, making sure that people don't show up in mosques. So this is something I'm worried about for my own country, Bangladesh, because Ramadan coming, uh, and now the people have even more of a reason to go, right? Um, so we should be, we need to figure out how to enlist local community leaders, something that Sierra Leone has done really well this time around, given their Ebola experience, right? Is to communicate very effectively and clearly with people who are trusted in local communities, like Nami Queens, like, and, um, and then in Bangladesh, we're trying to work with local masjid imams, right? And then another thing that Africa-specific, Asia-specific that we have to think about are, let's try to think about frugal innovations that will work for us. We can't just adopt sophisticated technologies like cell phone-based tracking and testing that uh, South Korea can do, right? Uh, so what's a frugal innovation? Let me give you an example from Ghana. 
Veronica buckets, named after a, a very impressive woman in Ghana named Miss Veronica. So these are very simple buckets with uh, water and bleach and a hand washing station. And in Sierra Leone, I've noticed that they've been de deployed everywhere. That's a country I work in. And you see every single building you get in, go into or come out of in Freetown, you have a Veronica bucket where you can wash your hands. Even in remote rural areas, since it doesn't require running water, you just uh, put them at police checkpoints be before people head to some remote villages, right? And even in those villages, you can have these uh, set up as they, as they have done, right? And finally, um, I'll just say that um, it's vitally important for us to bring together uh, a lot of, lot of data. Um, so uh, we need to collect data on symptoms. It's not easy for us as the virus spreads person to person and it goes beyond just migrants bringing it in, right? I think it will overwhelm our capacity to do testing, right? So at some point we need to start thinking about what are smart ways, indirect ways for us to collect this information about symptoms, maybe through phone calls. This is why cell phone providers are, are, are good partners. We need to collect data on food security in different parts of the country. We need to figure out what's happening with food shortages. We need to figure out what's happening with uh, food prices, are they going up, right? Because we need to spatially target support in different places. Let me stop. Thank there. you, Professor Ahmed. Thank you very much for that. Um, I just need to ask uh, one or two questions to the president of Ghana uh, before uh, he leaves uh, for an emergency meeting that he's having with his cabinet on this uh, precise matter to do with Corona. Uh, Mr. President, um, you have lifted the lockdown in your country. And um, it's very fascinating to a lot of the people who are looking at events uh, all over Africa. Um, what are the preliminary results that you're seeing from your lifting up the lockdown? And are there any circumstances under which you may resume the lockdown? Well, first of all, um, I think we should uh, have a context. Measures against public gatherings, um, the closure of the schools, all those are still very much in place, as well as, of course, as I indicated when I first spoke, the, uh, the, the, the closure of our borders. Uh, what took place in terms of our two cities, Accra and Kumasi, was within this larger framework of policy. And there, what we saw was that the information that came through told us quite a lot about the trajectory of the virus where it was, we were, we've been able to identify the areas where it is, we are therefore in a better position to, if you like, identify its geographic footprint and therefore be intensify our uh, tracing and uh, testing uh, machinery in the areas which have been identified. And it's also enabled us to be able to see what we needed to do to prevent it going elsewhere. It's been a difficult exercise, largely for many of the reasons that which the professor has also identified, the, the very different social and economic circumstances of us, of our economies and societies here in West Africa, that which is made which makes communal living, almost de rigueur. I mean, it's part and parcel of our structures. And therefore, the application of the social distancing rules become very much more problematic. 
we are now investing a lot of energies in seeing to it that people wear the mask. We see it as a very direct and manageable way of getting as many people as possible protected from the disease by the, the wearing of the mask. It's an easier um, solution than the strict enforcement of the social distancing. I'm not saying that they're, they are irrelevant, but we have also to recognize the realities of the societies in which we're working and, uh, and, and then put the emphasis there. That, that's, that's, that's more the decision as to uh, when public gatherings can resume has not yet been taken. We are not still sufficiently uh, confident that we have, had, we have the grip on the virus that we want to have. Uh, the same way, of course, the closure of the borders is still uh, not being uh, removed. We think we need to maintain it. In fact, we're trying to strengthen our borders because we're having um, episodic efforts on the part of our neighbors or people coming in who test, subsequently test, to, uh, test positive. So that's a measure that we're not about to, to undo any time from now. But the overall picture is that the rate of infection is something which is relatively constant. We're not seeing this large explosion that was, uh, that was feared for our country at the beginning. And therefore, the ability to manage those who are identified as uh, infected is much more within our means than initially we thought. But nevertheless, we're having to make uh, significant preparations and significant investment to do things that is important. First of all, in our public health system, it's quite clear that we need to strengthen it significantly to be able to meet not this, but also future pandemics. And then secondly, our own domestic production of our of, of, of products to satisfy our needs. Ghana, like many, many, many of the economies of, of West Africa and Africa, are heavily import dependent on uh, virtually all aspects of our national lives. It, it, it certainly is not conducive to, for our self-reliance, our capacity to do things for ourselves. So that is the other area in which a lot of emphasis is now being put. How, obviously we begin with the pharmaceutical industry, but beyond that, the productive aspects of our economy, how we can continue to strengthen that. So these are, so this, this, this will be my response to that. But I, I'm going to have to beg leave. Uh, of this panel. I'm, I'm really un unhappy that I'm not able to stay and, and, and participate in all of it. But uh, perhaps you'll find an opportunity for me in another occasion to do it. But thank you very much for the opportunity to come. And thank you very much, President Akufuado. And we wish you all the best and wish your country all the best as it confronts these challenges. Thank you very much, yes. President. Um, thank you. We go on to Kaduna, Nigeria. <clears throat> Governor Nasser El Rufai, who has insisted that I call him by his first name. Nasser, I'm going to pose 
the same questions that I posed to President Akufuado. What did you see? What did you decide to do about it? Why do you, did you decide what you did? And how is it going? Well, thank you, Kim. Um, on the 28th of February, the very first case of coronavirus was announced in Nigeria. And for us in Kaduna State, uh, Lagos was very far away, yet we knew Lagos is close. Uh, this Italian who uh, was the first index case uh, was in Ogun State, but we knew that it's a matter of time that this virus would get to Kaduna State. And uh, fortuitously, exactly a month later, on the 28th of March, I was tested positive for the virus. But before then, it was very clear to us that the response of the Lagos State Government was quite appropriate. Lagos was bound to be the epicenter of this virus because it is the uh, major transport, international transportation hub into Nigeria. We knew that Abuja would be next for the, for the same reason. And we also predicted that Kano would be the third because Kano also has international flights coming in and this virus would somehow be imported. For us in the Kaduna State Government, what was very clear was that this virus will come to us soon. We had to start preparing and we assembled our team of uh, public health experts, uh, economists and so on and so forth. Luckily for me, the Deputy Governor of Kaduna State is a public health consultant this is our area, epidemiology. Uh, so it was easy to let her take charge of the situation. Our Commissioner of Health has uh, been in the UN system for nearly 30 years, also a public health specialist. So we had two people, two ladies that were knowledgeable in this subject and had been involved in the work against Ebola and Lassa fever and they sufficiently scared all of us in the government of Kaduna State to take extraordinary measures. Now, what is clear to us, even then, is that there is a lot of information, policy, and data abstracts about this virus. Everyone is guessing. Nobody really knows for sure what to do. We decided that the best thing to do, as far as the Kaduna State government is concerned, is to take extreme measures. So we're the first state to lock down. We locked down on the 25th of March. Uh, and we knew that if we could prevent people from Abuja and Lagos from coming into Kaduna, we had a very good chance of slowing down the entry and the spread of the virus. Because we knew from day one that our public health system was incapable of dealing with the deluge of cases. So it was in our own interest to take steps to ensure that the cases, when they come, will be few and far between. So our initial strategy from day one was to keep it out, delay it, and if it comes, in small numbers that we could manage. That's one. Uh, secondly, um, when we locked down, we also had a package in which we spent 500 million of government funds to buy food 
and necessities to deliver to the poorest in the society. Because we have an economy in which 60% of our GDP is from the informal sector. Uh, most of the people that are employed in Kaduna State operate in the informal sector, and locking down means they would not have any steady income. So we had to intervene as a government, uh, go into a contingency fund, and literally buy rice, uh, indomie, and so on, and deliver to households. We are not able to cover the entire state. We took nine urban and peri-urban local governments and did that. And we knew that that would be the first problem. How do you get the poorest and the most vulnerable to have food during this period? So we implemented that. We also knew that many of our businesses are small and medium enterprises and micro enterprises. And we had to find a way to lock down in a way that they could still operate. So for instance, we exempted all grocery stores, all those that sell food, all pharmacies and patent medicine stores, we exempted them from the lockdown. That enabled some components of the informal sector to continue to operate. Um, we also realized that unless we did something about our schools, about education, uh, many of our children will be left behind. Now, Kaduna State is a poor state. It doesn't have 3G penetration all over. So the question of doing online classes was not something that would work across the state. Uh, so we came up with an idea to have lessons for our SS3 students who will be taking WAEC and NECO sometime this year uh, using the radio. So education now for SS3 is using the radio and we're working on developing similar programs for our primary and secondary schools. So how has this been so far? We've just extended the lockdown by another 30 days. Our initial lockdown was for 30 days. Uh, we extended it by another 30 days. Uh, I was the first case on the 20th of March. I became the first person to be infected with coronavirus. I got it from Abuja. I infected uh, four other people uh, and since then, the numbers have increased slightly, uh, not as fast as other states because of the extraordinary steps we took to contain the entry and the spread of the virus. Um, some of our neighbors, unfortunately, have not taken such steps. So we are now at great risk from what is happening in Kano and Katsina. And indeed, uh, last week we took uh, 148 Almajiris from Kano and when we took them, we put them in an isolation center, tested them, and some were positive. Five out of eight that, were, that had symptoms were positive. Uh, by this morning, another 16 out of 40 picked at random were positive. So the Almajiris from Kano have brought in 21 new infections into Kaduna. So we are putting them in an isolation center and dealing with it. It's been difficult. Um, we've been able to get a large proportion of the informal sector still operating. Um, the enforcement has been quite difficult. Uh, compliance has been uneven, but we feel that it is better we get 50% success than to allow 0% uh, 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 social distancing and, and, and so on and so forth. So we've been fairly successful, I would say, in 
getting the informal part of the economy going. We've used the opportunity to encourage the startup of new businesses, delivery businesses, for instance, that will deliver food to people's homes so that they don't have to go to the market. We've taken a decision now to close down all our markets and open temporary markets so that uh, in, in neighborhoods, so that people will not have to travel long distances. So um, it is a very difficult decision because you have to balance uh, life, livelihood, and liberty. Because to lock people down, to prevent most of the people from going out for a month is infringing on their liberty to some extent. But we prioritize life. We, we, we decided that we had to do whatever we had to do to ensure that the lives of the people of Kaduna State are protected. And that's why we, lock, we, we, we close our state. We don't allow vehicles in. We allow, you know, we don't allow passenger vehicles. We allow freight vehicles. We allow the movement of goods and services uh, because Kaduna is a transportation hub and an important commercial uh, center in northern Nigeria. So we allow that. A lot of agriculture is still going on. A lot of uh, transport and logistics businesses are going on. Uh, petroleum products are going uh, through the state. But we want to keep people out and we've tried to keep people out. Um, we do not think this is the time to relax the lockdown because in a state of our 10 million people, we've only tested about 200 people. And we have about uh, 20 uh, so far infected. And we do not think we have a handle yet on the footprint of this virus to relax the lockdown. Uh, but we believe that every state should look at its own circumstances and take its own decisions. Uh, the federal government has taken its own decisions regarding Lagos, Ogun, and and uh, the FCT, we are not relaxing. We intend to keep this. It will cost us. And this is why uh, the state government, uh, public servants and political appointees have all contributed money from their salaries so that we can buy more food and necessities and distribute to the poorest and the most vulnerable. Uh, our first round of distribution relied on communities identifying those that are the poorest. But this second round, we'll be able to get data from telecoms companies, and I want to thank and appreciate the Minister of Communication and Digital Economy that made this possible, and the Executive Vice Chairman of NCC. We have data now in Kaduna State of all people that have phones that spend less than 100 Naira, or less than 200 Naira, or 300 Naira a month on their recharge, which means they are poor. So those are the ones that we, and we can now target. We know exactly who to give this uh, food intervention support to. And those are the ones we are targeting. So we hope that our second round of distribution of the food and other necessities will be, more, will be better targeted and uh, will be fairer. Uh, so that's what we are doing. Uh, it is difficult uh, to, 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 to make these policy choices and nobody is sure about what is right or what is wrong. But what we knew from day one for sure, maybe because my two top advisors are both doctors, is that we'll prioritize the protection of lives. We must do whatever we can to ensure that people of Kaduna State are protected from this virus. And whatever it takes, we'll do it. 
and apologize after. Uh, so that's what we've been doing. And, uh, but I believe that at the end of the day, uh, each subnational, each country must find its own way and its own solutions. Uh, the coronavirus will change the way we live and work for the rest of our lives. Uh, the new normal will be quite different from what we used to know. Uh, but we also think that it has created opportunities for new businesses to thrive. For instance, now we must all have internet, 3G, 4G, all over the country because everybody now needs it. A lot of what we'll be doing in education and healthcare will have to be uh, uh, using the internet. Delivery and logistics business will thrive. This is also an opportunity for fintech uh, businesses to rise. This is the time for mobile money. To, to finally take off in Nigeria because we don't have a choice anymore. Uh, and for many of us, governments uh, and the Nigerian elite, this is a wake-up call for us to have a strong and functioning public health system. And we are investing aggressively in strengthening our health system because for the first time in the history of Nigeria, the Nigerian elite have been locked down in Nigeria they have to use Nigerian medical care. They cannot go abroad. And this, I think, is another opportunity for us to rebuild our public health systems. And I'm happy and we are grateful to the private sector for coming in and supporting the federal government and the states in this regard. We are grateful to the private sector also for all the contributions they have made, both monetary as well as in-kind food, medical equipment and commodities uh, that has helped the federal government and the states to fight this virus. Uh, thank you very much, Nasser. Um, I would just like to welcome the Vice President of Nigeria, Professor Yami Usibajo, who has joined us. He had another meeting uh, before this session and therefore had to come in late, but he's most, he's most welcome. Uh, Amandla, a lot of research that you've done about the poor, about the informal sector, about what happens to them in this kind of situation? What should we be doing about them? You've also done a lot of work on the international assistance that Africa may be requiring. Can you share with us the outcomes of your research in these areas? Absolutely. Hakim, thank you so much for having me. Uh, now with your hat as professor, it's a real pleasure to be here with you all today and Teresa for gathering us so professionally. So I'll get started by a brief way of introduction. Uh, I'm an associate partner in the Nairobi office of McKinsey. And my work is actually at the center of the question on the informal sector. I spend most of my time in agriculture and food. And as you all know, agriculture of these approximately 300 million informal sector workers across the continent, more than half of them are farmers. Moreover, the average African is spending 50 to 60% of their income on food in poor economies or in poor parts of the um, continent even more. And most people are buying their food in informal markets. 60% of our population are there. So my work is really at the center of understanding informal sector markets in agriculture. I'll allow me to take you on a bit of a journey, uh, Professor Hakim, as you've inspired me, um, to do a bit on the healthcare imperative and a bit on the economic imperative. Every couple of weeks, we're serving over a thousand Africans testing their consumer sentiment, testing financial decision-making. Between my colleagues and I, who were co-authors of the report um, that I'll refer to a lot here, 
any given week, we're speaking to dozens of ministers, CEOs of large corporations, leaders at the forefront, SME leaders at the forefront of this crisis. And so what I will share is informed by conversations we have with them every single day as well. If I can have the first page. Uh, Professor, allow me to indulge a little bit in the context because I think it's helpful to orient ourselves in the order of magnitude that we're talking about on the impact across the continent. The pandemic is indeed progressing at a slower rate uh, in Africa than other regions, but our rate of testing is incredibly low. So across the continent, we've seen just north of 3,300 cases. These numbers are from last night, confirmed across Africa, compared to 1.2 million in Europe. Europe has about twice the population of Africa. However, Europe is doing testing at a rate of 10 times the best testing we're doing across the continent. So for Africa's 1.2 billion people, we've tested approximately 600,000 individuals. This equates to, in our best country that's doing this in South Africa, five to 6,000 tests a day. Whereas in Germany, which has a population slightly more than South Africa, they're doing 50,000 tests a day. So we don't know uh, how much the virus has spread, uh, even if we've not seen the takeoff that happened around week four to week six in a lot of European countries. It does present an opportunity for us as we think about protecting lives across the continent. Testing strategies vary wildly. And as lots of people, the governor have reiterated, Professor Mushfik has reiterated, our critical care capacity is very low on the continent. There's a lot of things that we've learned over the past 10 years around diagnostic testing, given the fights we've had with HIV and tuberculosis, for example. But critical care capacity is what overwhelms the healthcare system with regards to COVID. So we have about 1.7 ICU beds per 100,000 people in Africa. China is at 3.6. America that is really struggling is at about 30 ICU beds per 100,000. So we cannot afford for the crisis to get to a place where our healthcare system is overwhelmed. Now, as we think about testing, you know, we started a lot of these lockdown measures early. We've had advanced warning. Testing is a really critical part of that strategy. And we get asked a lot, how much is it going to cost to prepare our healthcare systems for this crisis? And the big answer is it depends, right? So as I mentioned, we're at 500,000, 600,000 tests today. If I follow the first row of small bubbles that you see on the page there, that assumes that our infection rate stays at 0.1%. To give you a sense, this is about a third of Spain's infection rate 30 days into the virus then if we just do essential testing, that's testing prioritized for patients with defined symptoms, that requires 5 million tests. If we were to do broad testing in the bottom row where we would have less robust containment, 1% of the infection rate of the population, this is about what New York City saw in the first 30 days, then we need 300 million tests. The order of magnitude here is significant. And the way we're encouraging governments to think about this is build capacity now, right? The 500,000, 600,000 tests is not enough. We've estimated a cost of about $5 billion at a minimum to get us prepared for the, for the less robust containment stage of things. Getting N95 masks, getting surgical masks, getting the tests, getting the ventilators required in the next 100 days. And so even as we think about protecting lives, it's really, really important to ramp up the healthcare capacity, but also really ramp up our testing so we can get a real sense of where these numbers sit. If I could have the second slide um, and take you a bit to the question of livelihoods that we've all been discussing, 
What you see on this page is a structure of the employment across the continent. Approximately 440 million Africans are considered to be in the workforce. About 40% of them, more than actually 50% of them or so, are self-employed. Most of them are in the informal sector. And a further 40% of them are employed by SMEs. So it's really important for us to, as we think about jobs in particular, think about the impact on SMEs. And the SMEs I'll talk about over the course of the next couple of minutes are SMEs that are employing two or more individuals. The threshold in a lot of countries actually that we've looked at is about 10. Uh, we recognize the enormous amount of the hustler SME, but the interventions there look a bit different and I'll talk about that in a second. This is the structure of our, our economies. If we were to have a look at the next slide, We've done a fair amount of analysis to understand what the impact of COVID could be in jobs, both in the formal and the informal sector. And the top line story is this, regardless of formal or informal sector jobs, about a third of the jobs across the continent are likely to be affected by the crisis. In the case of the formal sector, about 20 million jobs are at risk of being lost with another 30 million or so at risk of having a reduction in salary, uh, reduced working hours, and other effects on employment that don't necessarily require job loss. In the informal sector, where we have these 300 million uh, individuals, as I mentioned, most of them actually are smallholder farmers, we expect 100 of those, so again, another third, to be rendered vulnerable as a result of the crisis. Uh, happy to talk about in Q&A if you're interested, all the various ways we size these numbers, but it's quite a significant portion of individuals in our informal sector that need their livelihoods protected. If we could quickly go to the next slide. What's important to understand, even as we think about balancing the livelihoods and the lives, is that we, we've asked for a significant fiscal stimulus from the international community that we hope will trickle down to the SMEs. The order of magnitude we're looking at is about 100 to $150 billion that has been requested uh, on behalf of ministers of finance across the continent. These numbers are big, but they're still not enough to bridge the gap that we expect to see in GDP growth, and therefore the impact that this will have on jobs. In the best case scenario, we think we can maybe close half of the gap that you're seeing that's affecting these 150 million jobs. But there's still a long way to go. African governments are spending approximately 20% of their government revenues doing debt repayment. Uh, so there's a question of getting money, there's a question of all the money that's actually leaving our economies that's not going into a fiscal stimulus. What does it mean to spend 20% of your government revenues uh, servicing debt? For a country like Angola, it means that Angola is spending six times more money servicing debt than investing in the healthcare system. So while we think about fiscal stimuluses, there's also questions about getting into a debt standstill on some of the sovereign debt that's owed, as well as some of the private debts that, that's owed on all of our Eurobonds. And so that gives us a sense of the fiscal stimulus that would be required to mitigate some of the job impacts, but it will only make a difference if it actually reaches SMEs. Professor Mushfik started to speak about this a little bit, and you know, I would separate the SMEs into three categories. Essential services uh, SMEs, which Governor um, Nasser talked about, these are people providing food services, providing PPEs, and making sure that they can stay open. The pressures we're hearing in that segment of SMEs right now is around cash pressures, uh, working capital, their loan repayments and credit terms. In Kenya, about 25% of SMEs that fit into this bucket uh, are closed already. 
and another 30% are concerned about being able to survive past 30 days. And so that category of SMEs that are providing essential services need quick infusions of cash. And I'll talk about in a second what that could look like. The second category of SMEs are those that are supporting significant number of jobs. If we think about the impact of the COVID on our informal sector economies, we need to think about stimulating the SMEs that are providing a lot of jobs. This will differ enormously by sector. I'll take the example of tourism in Kenya. Tourism has received an incredible hit from COVID, right? We've just seen flights, things completely shutting down. The number of jobs in the tourism sector, though, is much less than in something like retail. And so governments are having to think about where are the jobs, therefore, how do we mitigate the biggest level of impacts? The third category of SMEs are then the hustlers we talked about. The kind of support that's required is somewhat financial. So when we talk about uh, increasing working capital, we're thinking about ideas like the government actually providing support to SMEs that are, or large businesses actually further up the value chain. So in agriculture, I would think about a large producer of seeds or of crop protection. It's a big company where lots of small SMEs would go to this inputs provider to get their seeds and their crop protection. It's actually easier to target that slightly larger company to then provide support to these SMEs so we can make sure it gets directly to the SMEs that require it with some conditionality on protecting the jobs of those SMEs is one way to try and get very, very targeted for this group of SMEs. Um, the other way uh, is actually operational. So it's not just financial challenges we're hearing in these SMEs, but what does it mean to do social distancing in an open market? Um, it's super challenging in some markets in Western Kenya if you can decentralize and do what you're seeing, uh, we're seeing Governor Nasser is able to do and move markets into schools or open stadia, that's great. There are lots of places where you can't do that. So do you have alternating market days so that you have half the capacity of people in your open market at any given point in time? Do you change the supply chain and logistics so that rather than delivering between the farms and the market, could these trucks become a collection point for where you do this? There's a lot of operational support required as well when we think about the SMEs. And so finally, let me, let me leave you with, uh, with this last point around balancing this health imperative that I talked about, where it's really about our testing strategies and ramping them up, and this economic imperative of keeping SMEs open and maintaining jobs. Uh, what you see on the slide in front of you is a matrix that on the y-axis looks at strategies to protect the general population. So all the way at the top on the y-axis, you see a full lockdown. And uh, we have countries like South Africa that are at that end of the spectrum. At the bottom, you see social distancing and physical distancing measures. Uh, most African countries are actually, uh, I think it was just Burundi about a week ago that hadn't imposed uh, actions beyond physical distancing, but most African economies are really thinking about the y-axis. And as the president of Ghana mentioned, we started going up the axis and now we're thinking about coming down the axis as we try to control the virus spread and we have a handle over test growth. We're really encouraging governments to think about moving along the x-axis. And the x-axis measures protection for those at risk of getting the COVID in the most severe manner. So those are people who are elderly, which is a smaller segment of our population than in the West, as Professor Mishvig talked about. Um, but it also includes people who have immunocompromised health systems. So we're still very unclear about the impact of the virus with comorbidities around HIV and tuberculosis. So we're really encouraging governments to think about moving on the x-axis. And this is what the impact is. If you start at the bottom left of this chart, the pink box, 
This is assuming, you know, this is where we were in Kenya at the beginning of March, that there was requests for people to have physical distancing, but by and large, the economy was operating as, as is, and you'd see 100% of, of economic impact. You'd also see about 100% of potential cases if you're open. If you move all the way up the y-axis to where we are in lockdown, you see a significant reduction in economic impact. Uh, a lot of our work actually mirrors what Professor Mushfin has seen. You go from 100% of what you were able to operate at to about 30%. But the trade-off is much lower number of cases, about 10% of what you'd see in the baseline. On the opposite axis, on the x-axis, if you were to say, let's continually open up the economy, which we're starting to see South Africa do, we're starting to see Ghana do, and move across the x-axis where you're able to shield and protect the most vulnerable populations, you'd be in somewhere like scenario E, where the total number of cases would still be very high, the total economic activity would still be very high, but you're able to greatly reduce the severity of cases, the percent of severe cases. And the case for shielding is this. I will end you on this imperative. Number one, if you're able to shield, which is what Governor Nasser is so effectively doing by maintaining lockdowns and thinking about the most vulnerable populations, you reduce the capacity constraints on the healthcare system, which at the beginning of this I said is very low to start with. The second thing you do is that we buy ourselves time to better understand the interactions of the virus and other susceptible populations. So when you think about physical distancing and what it would mean for things to spread very quickly in our economies, in informal sectors, informal settlements in particular, where you have physical distancing is leaving your home, <laughs> is what happens in informal sectors, right? In Kibera, I was speaking to one of my good friends, Kennedy Odede, yesterday. So Kibera has a population of 500,000 to 1 million people, depending on which villages you count. The density in Kibera is 2,200 people per hectare. In New York, that's 600 to 800. So there's almost four times the number of people in the same amount of space in Kibera. So if we're able to effectively do shielding, then we're able to understand the spread of the virus with comorbidities in areas like informal settlements where we just don't have the capacity to handle a crisis of the magnitude that we're seeing in Spain or Italy. And finally, the third thing that shielding allows you to do is it allows you to open up your economy and get those jobs, the vulnerable jobs, try and protect them in some way, shape or form. And we've started to do a lot of thinking, I'm happy to talk about that a bit later in Q&A, on how you would think about reopening your economy. There's definitely a demographic element to this and a geographic element to this as well. So if you think about in Nairobi, are there specific neighborhoods where you say you can contain the viral spread? If you can contain the viral spread, then you can begin to look at options and sectors that you can open up. Essential services stay open, but what does it mean to open up manufacturing in one part of Nairobi? where the factories are an industrial area, when workers are commuting in from other areas. So we really need to think about the intersection of some of these issues as we think about reopening the economy. And I'll, I'll end there. And the three things I, I shared is number one, the imperative to protect lives is paramount. And really ramping up our testing strategies is a critical part of being able to understand the magnitude of this problem and then mobilize resources accordingly. The second thing is about safeguarding livelihoods. With all the fiscal stimulus that is, we're, we're, we're asking for from the international community and being announced by our governments, we have to make sure that they hit jobs for SMEs in order to really make a difference. And finally, we need to really find our path in balancing these two imperatives uh, because this virus might be with us for a while. And so we need to find sustainable ways to balance those two imperatives.
Wonderful. Well, thank you so much, Amanla, for that very helpful presentation. And I know that we have many questions. At this moment, I'd like to just take a break from our regular um, discussion and uh, launch something that I think is very important. Amanla's presentation was particularly useful because of the data that she has collected. And one of the things that we can do on these calls, given that we have about 5,000 people, all business leaders across the continent participating, is we like to collect some data. We'd like to do a poll. And so I think that the information that you as participants on this call, leaders of Africa, it would be very helpful to decision makers to know what you think about a couple of key questions. So we're going to take just a moment and we're gonna launch our first poll question. You can reply on your screens. The first question is, to what degree do you think that strictly enforced lockdowns are an appropriate response to COVID-19 in Africa? See, very interesting results. Um, only about 38% um, agree and then another 26% strongly agree. So we do have well over half that think that strictly enforced lockdowns um, are an appropriate response. Um, we have about 11% that neither agree nor disagree and about 25% who disagree altogether. So this is very useful information. It seems as if most people do agree that strictly enforced lockdowns are an appropriate response in Africa. Very helpful. We have a second question for you. Um, the second question is to what degree are you concerned about social unrest that results from the informal sector's inability to provide for themselves during the pandemic? You can see, based on the responses from about 3,000 of you, we have 84% um, of you are strongly concerned, 15% somewhat concerned, and only 1% are not concerned at all. So that's a very strong statement for our policymakers on the phone. Please be mindful of what we're hearing from across Africa. We have a third question for you. To what extent do you agree that African government's external debt should be forgiven in light of the economic impact of the pandemic and the need to shift government resources towards healthcare? We've just crossed 3,000, we will turn this off. And 85%, 84% believe um, that you agree or strongly agree that African government's external debt should be forgiven because of the imperative to shift resources. There are only 7% um, who disagree and another 2% who disagree. So a very strong statement that we will share with policymakers. And we hope that this will be useful for the multilateral organizations and the capital markets globally to understand um, what people of Africa think, what the leaders of Africa think on these issues. Um, I'm going to turn this over back to Hakeem to continue the discussion. Um, I would like at this point to thank Standard Bank who has very generously come in to support this effort and make sure that we can carry on with this useful um, platform. So thank you very much, Standard Bank. With that, I'm gonna go back to Hakeem. Thank you, Theresa. I will just ask one follow-up question to Professor Mubarak and then throw it open to the general Q&A uh, to all those people who are listening in um, on this webinar. Uh, Professor Mubarak, I want to turn to the issue of stimulus measures. Uh, right now, the governors of the central banks, the finance ministers uh, in all the African countries and the heads of the economic committees in the various governments, they are all right now racking their brains on the issue of what are the essential components of a stimulus package? What should they be doing differently than what they have been doing pre-coronavirus? Could you share with us the outcomes of your extended research work in this particular area? 
I'll, I'll just make two uh, simple points about uh, stimulus payments, right? So the first one is that we normally, I, I understand why we call it stimulus payments, but it sends a wrong signal. It's not that we are trying to give people money to stimulate the economy. In fact, right now, given the health risks involved, what you want to do is make transfers to people such that they're not stimulated, but that they stay at home. So, and you know, so it's, it's a kind of the opposite. Um, and so, you know, what are the simple things we can do, you know, now uh, going into behavioral economics a little bit? Can we be labeling transfers with some soft conditionality that this is a conditional cash transfer, where normally we give you conditional cash transfers to send your kids to school or something like that. And here, can we add a conditionality that now we're asking you to you know, stay at home? So we need to think about stimulus payments. I mean, the same type of payments have to be made, but the delivery of it, the details of it, given that we are in this new type of crisis, right? not a regular recession, that's, uh, that's how we have to think about it. And then the second point, the general point I want to make is um, you know, targeting support to some real parts of the economy so they don't get destroyed. So I won't, uh, Amanda spoke very eloquently about uh, all of this. How do you target support? What are the types of sectors right, that are more vulnerable? Maybe the poor depend on more uh, that should be targeted first. You know, and so, so that's, uh, uh, you know, you should pay attention to what Amanda says. But on top of that, um, I'll just say that, look, the way to think about how to target support is if, you know, if there's a, say an iPhone that you want to buy, that can be bought later, a few months later. So those are the types of businesses, I'm using a simple example, those are the types of businesses that don't necessarily need to be supported right now. However, if there's a restaurant meal that you would have had today, there's no way that you can have today's meal three months later. So there are some things that actually get destroyed from the real economy and some things that don't. And those, uh, that's a type of thinking that central bankers and policymakers have to have on what are the types of businesses and business activities and services that are more susceptible uh, to this particular shock and more vulnerable. Because the worst thing we can do is let some real parts of the economy get destroyed because that's going to have persistent effects beyond the period of this crisis. I think that we should perhaps use one of your um, important friends who has joined us today right now, Hakim. We have with us um, Asim Khwaja, who's the director of the Center for International Development at Harvard University on the line with us. And I think that we should ask him um, to pose a question and perhaps comment on what has been said thus far. Uh, great, thank you so much, Risa. Thank you, Hakeem. Uh, it's actually been really fun to hear um, everyone from sort of very inspirational leaders as Mushfik said to, to, to friends of mine who are academics, to an ex-student of mine who really I'm really proud to see uh, as well. Uh, um, so I should, and also I grew up in Nigeria, so it's, it's super nice to see uh, uh, the governor. And, uh, it's a pleasure. Uh, I grew up in Kano, but you know, I've been to Kaduna many times. So it's a thrill to be here. Um, let me make a couple of comments and then I want to pose a question back to the panelists. Um, so first of all, you know, I think as Bushwick said and Mandela also said and the president also said, I think this is very much a, a challenge where information and learning will help. Um, and I'm really glad to have seen that. I'm really glad to have seen the focus on testing, the desire to learn, the desire to be fairly thoughtful and deliberative about what you're doing. I think that's very critical. Um, I would make three observations, which I heard these themes, but I just want to re-emphasize them. And in the same three observations, I'd love to hear from any of the panelists, uh, particularly the vice president has joined as well, and I'd love to hear from him, his thoughts too on this. Um, 
So uh, the three observations are one, uh, very much as Mushfik has mentioned as well, and sort of we've been doing work at Harvard at the Center for International Development, highlighting the same thing, which is, you know, for a lot of developed countries, this is life versus money. For our countries, this decision is really life versus life. Um, so when you think of this, you know, when you think of locking down and saving lives from Corona, at the same time, severe lockdowns will risk lives because of what we're doing uh, due to Corona. In other words, we're seeing this, and Mushfik alluded to this as well, other patients who may be in, um, in poor health may not get access to medical facilities. In fact, that disease burden may fall on a very different population. So as much as we're saving the elderly by protecting them, we may be risking mothers and infants by making it harder for women to give delivery in hospitals, which we're beginning to see in many countries. And so uh, I wanna make sure that when we pose this, and I wanna ask this back to my panelists as well to say, how are you seeing the lives versus lives trade-off? And what information are you using to be able to make that trade-off? These are gonna be really, really hard decisions. And so that's kind of the first question. The second question I think is, and Kim and I were talking about this yesterday, you know, this is a real test of humility for all of us. Uh, in many ways, a lot of what we thought about how we could solve problems, you know, it's taken one dead bug to basically put us all on our knees uh, in a very significant way. Uh, and one aspect of that humility is realizing that, um, you know, we really need to learn more. Um, there's a lot of arrogance in response, in, you know, thinking we know what best to do. Mushfik alluded to the place we're both at right now and how our response has been inadequate. Um, so I'd like to pose a second question. The first one, how do we think of the lives versus lives trade-off? The second question is, how are we rapidly acquiring knowledge? Uh, every case is gonna be different. Are we setting up learning processes? So one thing we've been arguing and we teach a lot as well, is when you take a decision, uh, realize that you're taking a decision with a lot of uncertainty around the outcome of the decision. So what you want to do is when you act, you not only do you want to have your action be based on learning, but you need to take, be taking actions which enhance your learning. Um, one cross example of this is how we use tests. Uh, a lot of uh, doctors use tests for therapeutic reasons. One would want to use tests for information revelation reasons. And those are very interesting. Those are often in opposition. So just to give you an example, if you test for therapeutic reasons, you want to test someone who you think is likely infected. If you test for learning reasons, that's the exact wrong thing to be doing. You want to test people who you think may be infected, but there's no reason to expect they're infected. It's a very different kind of uh, deployment on, on tests. And I think that's the second kind of question I'd like to know is how are we learning? How are we setting up uh, learning uh, processes in this? And the last thing I would say, and I'll end over there, um, a theme which I'd like to see a bit more of, and I heard bits and pieces of it, is the only way to deal with this tough decision, kind of the rock and the hard place about locking down and not locking down, is, is breaking your country up into smaller manageable pieces and having differential policy in each piece. That's the only way. There's no way you can have uniforms. Uh, and Amandala alluded to this as well. And I wanted to hear a bit from you is how you're beginning to think about, um, in some sense, uh, making your country into smaller manageable grids, which could be feasibly isolated from each other. Um, is there thoughts you've paid to that? And if so, what? Are those. Uh, but otherwise, it's been really a thrill to hear you. You're all very much in the front lines, and I wanted to express my gratitude for being in those front lines. Okay, and at this time, Hakim, would you like to introduce the Vice President of Nigeria? Um, I'd, I'd like to introduce Professor Yemi Usibaja, Vice President of Nigeria, a distinguished law professor, 
and uh, I'd like to invite him uh, to make his comments and to respond to some of the statements that were made by Asim. Uh, thank you very much, Kim, and um, uh, let me just say it's such a great pleasure to be uh, with you all. And um, this has been extremely uh, stimulating conversation. And, and let me say uh, first that um, the, the, the challenges, you know, that we face uh, in Nigeria, you know, just as uh, I think um, Nasir has already alluded to, of course, must even the population uh, that us in made, you know, perhaps we have the advantage of being able to manage ourselves uh, or, our, or our own uh, problems in, 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 in smaller measure or, you know, dividing up, as it were, the country. Of course, we run a federation, which means that uh, uh, Nasir could do some very excellent work up there in Kaduna. Lagos could do some excellent work, or the state could do some excellent work, you know. But of course, you know, by the very nature of these, uh, by the very nature of this uh, pandemic, it also means that you run the risk of everything uh, going south if some state isn't doing as well as it ought. So I, I, I think in, in the end, we, we, we have that advantage that we're able to almost isolate as it were, you know, uh, responses and even look at best practices across the various states and try and, you know, uh, ramp up wherever we find that there are deficiencies. But, but, but that's just to the point that, that, that that's in need. I'd just like to ask a few questions. I, I really would uh, hate to pass up the opportunity of so many uh, very bright minds here and not to ask questions and to uh, waste the time talking uh, or making my own views. Let, let, let me ask Amandla, you know, uh, if I could get some free advice uh, from, uh, from uh, McKinsey on this point. I wonder what you think, you know, uh, about some of the current, uh, so some of the current uh, conversation going on uh, between African uh, ministers of finance, uh, the economic uh, community for, uh, sorry, the, uh, the ECA, on this whole question of converting uh, sovereign commercial debt to new concessional paper, backed up you know, or guaranteed, as it were, by um, multilaterals. Some have suggested that uh, perhaps we could ask the e e some of the G7 countries uh, to use their SDR rights and the IMF to, you know, support this whole effort. And because, you know, of course, one of the major problems we have at the moment is the point that you made, you know, debt servicing and spending so much uh, resources on debt servicing at a time when we can you know, really hardly afford uh, to run care of the other business uh, that, we need to, uh, that we need to do. I'd like to ask what your views are. The other question that I'd like to ask is, uh, you know, uh, I hope Ahmed is still there. Uh, Mubarak, uh, Professor Mubarak, I hope he's still there. Right, I'd like to ask him, you know, just, uh, you know, because, okay, we, we've done a lot uh, of, uh, on conditional transfers, especially within the context of our social investment. But we're now looking at how 
to possibly enlarge the scope of that and do more. Now, we're looking beyond uh, using cash rental for staying at home. We're, we're, we're trying to see whether this can address some of the problems of, you know, the, some of the increasing problems of poverty that we're likely to find now, given just the disruptions. Aside from the lockdown, even just the disruptions of the economy have meant, as you pointed out, that the daily paid worker simply has no means of working, and so many people have been laid off. So what do you think about cash transfers? I mean, to what extent do you think that these are useful in, uh, in, in, in stimulating the economy more money and taking out of poverty? And then one last question, uh, one last question. And this is uh, the question, and I, anyone who could answer this, now, we've been talking a lot about targeting small businesses, target support for small businesses, target support for MSMEs and all of that. Now, given our own circumstances, I mean, I, I, I just, you know, I'm enthralled by what we see in some of the countries, you know, especially in the West, where because there is some, you know, reasonable data about all of the MSMEs that are available, they're able to target directly. What do we do? I mean, here we have uh, loads of one-man businesses. The informal sector is truly informal, you know. And, and when you say agent, informal, that is a massive part of the economy. How do you target small businesses? Is it a small loan, you know, and, or are we looking at something more creative? And if, if there is something more creative, I certainly would like to, uh, to know. So these are the, the, the questions, uh, these are the questions I have, and if there are any other questions that you'd like me to answer, I'd be happy to. Thank you. Well, um, I think, Amanda, why don't you go first? All right, uh, um, Ahmed goes second, um, and then um, the third one, I will leave it to one of the panelists uh, to take that question. Um, Amanda, please, you next. Uh, so, Mr. Vice President, let me accept this offer to give you free advice with an answer that I would need more analysis to give you a specific answer for Nigeria. And so I'll reach out for, uh, for the opportunity to do that further. I think my um, not being a financial economist, what I think is fantastic about having the conversation about convertible debt is it gets us thinking about very creative ways outside of traditional instruments we've used in this fiscal monetary space to address the challenges that we're in. So I think we need to think about things like convertible debt, um, debt swaps, even when we get further down uh, away from sovereign debt into private debt. Um, I think we need to also understand what it means, right? That we are forestalling payments. <laughs> We're not getting debt relief, right? And some of our, you know, we've successfully negotiated some debt relief, not just for highly indebted poor countries, but others. I think we should see these conversations as an opportunity to think about fundamentally restructuring our relationship with debt. So we're forestalling payments, but our debt to GDP ratios continue to be unsustainable given the amount of servicing that we're doing. So it's not just about the instruments, but really how we would restructure um, these conversations going forward. And so I personally am really excited for the opportunity for our governments to do that, one. I mean, the second thing that uh, conversations like these convertible swaps are doing, the power is really in trying to have this conversation at a pan-African level. And so our envoys that have been nominated by the AU are showing the power already of going as a unified voice 
So the, the strength of our economies as 54 is a very different bargaining negotiation, negotiation you go into as opposed to as ECOWAS or as, uh, or as ECA or as SADC. And so I think that opportunity is one that, uh, that we can't wait on. The third opportunity though that I think we have in thinking about a question like this is how we consider actual domestic savings and trying to, again, it's part of restructuring how we think about debt, but are there opportunities for us to change our marginal propensity to consume, which is super high right now. This is actually something I learned in Asim Kwaja's class. Um, but the marginal propensity to consume in China is very, very low, which is why savings and domestic savings rates in China are very high. So when you think about stimulating your economy, you can do it from a domestic pool of money. And now that we're potentially pegging our currencies to the RMB across our economies, it's actually really helpful to think about building capacity domestically to save. And so I think that this question of converting uh, those bonds gives us an opportunity to do that thinking and really do it at a pan-African level, because that's, I think, how we make it different than times we've entered negotiations with, with uh, global parties previously. Okay. Uh, so thank you, Mr. Vice President, for that question. The question about conditional cash transfers, I think cash transfers are absolutely necessary, right? Whether they should be, the, the details that you have to figure out are things like, should they be conditional? And should that be in cash or in kind? Right? How, how should the delivery mode be? Yeah. Uh, I'll come back to that. But first, I want to talk a little bit about, you know, the mechanics of getting cash transfers out or any kind of transfers out, even if you want to. So the first part of the mechanics is that we need to figure out how to target. So how do we identify the people who are currently most at need? So here, I want to talk about three different objectives that the government might have. So one is that you want to target the poor, people who are most desperate. And the reason is, if they're going hungry, they're not going to be able to follow your guidelines, right? So that's, that's one thing. Second, we might want to identify people who are hurting the most. What are the occupations that, have, that are facing the largest shocks? So here I would point out, as uh, the president of Ghana earlier did, day wage laborers, migrant workers. And why is it that we care about migrant workers? These are the people who might also impose the largest negative public health externalities because they move around for work, right? And they can spread the disease. So now the question is, are there any good ways for us to identify people who just face the largest shots? So earlier in my presentation, uh, before you joined, Mr. Vice President, I talked about, you know, the, uh, some types of agricultural laborers that face very, very large shots that we can identify from the data. Now, how do you go about identifying those occupations? So here, you know, neither, I'm working on this problem in Bangladesh, and neither the government nor researchers have great information on this. And the, the entity that has the best information that we can make use of is the mobile service providers, because it's the one technology that now 150 million people in my country in Bangladesh now carry around. So there are now mechanisms for us to maybe merge sort of old household survey data of the type that has been collected around Nigeria, around Bangladesh with mobile service uh, usage patterns. And it won't surprise you to learn that poor people, people who are suffering, they use the mobile, mobile phones differently than we do. So you can use machine learning, artificial intelligence, in order to pick up subtle patterns in their mobile phone usage that distinguishes them from us. And once you have that machine learning algorithm developed, then you can apply it countrywide and say, okay, let's identify the people who are using their phones this way. And let's see if you can send them an SMS and identify them quickly. And then um, I'll, I'll say one other thing about data. If you could go down two more slides. 
I think this is a case where this is a map of Bangladesh and the different districts and sub-districts. So this is also a case where we need to figure out how to join forces between research data, cell phone providers, government data systems in order to target, spatially target support where it's most needed. Right? So the map I'm showing here, the darker colors, just happen to be data from the government systems on who received migration permits. So what does this, this data useful for? I can figure out what are the sub-districts within Bangladesh that had lots of migrants who were traveling to Italy or Spain, like countries that were most affected and where our disease came from, right? Since I know their addresses, I can target that back to, oh, these are the sub-districts where the disease is most likely present and most likely to be growing. So using like indirect inferences like this in the absence of direct nationwide testing, as Amanla pointed out that in Africa and Asia, we don't have widespread testing. We need to figure out how to cleverly make use of these types of indirect data. And one of the things I, I will point out here uh, is that while we're doing this work in Bangladesh, we are also trying to build teams to do this in various African countries as well. Uh, so I would be very happy uh, to, to connect and help in whatever uh, way we can. Uh, so uh, for the third question, who would like to address the third question? Can I throw it open? Akeem, I can comment on it, something I've thought about. I think the best way to support SMEs is by basically allowing them to work. I'm going to say something controversial. Uh, if we do any subsidy mechanism, it'll always be imperfect. Uh, and I think what we need to think about it is how do you open up work opportunities for them, which are safe in the COVID world. And the way you should think about that is have small producers. Small production is very safe, actually. You just need the transaction between buyer and seller to happen safely. So you should think of small producers being connected to like online delivery mechanisms. I think that's probably the best. Thank you very much. Um, I think that we've had a very lively conversation. We can all agree that um, Africa is different. We should not be following what Europe and what North America is doing simply because that's what they're doing there. But on the other hand, we should not be opposing what Europe and North America are doing simply because that's what they're doing. I think that that is as dangerous as mimicking the West. There are certain things that are happening in Europe, testing, masks, a superb healthcare system that we should copy. There are certain things that Cuba is doing, providing outstanding healthcare system in a country that is under sanctions from its next door neighbor, the United States, doesn't have much money, but seems to have put together an outstanding healthcare system. We've got to look at what they're doing and copy it. Now, but what I think is important and a very prime reason for the discussion today has been the need for the unity and the connection between knowledge and power. And in many regards, I think that that has been too absent in the continent of Africa. Though there are those who will say, to, who will say that there are many other parts of the world where there seems to be a disjunction between knowledge and power as well. Now, what do I mean by that? I mean that decision-making is important. It is key, but it must be informed. It must follow research. It must follow the mental efforts to do serious work. We've got to stop having announcements and instead have informed action. We've got to have 
policies which have been thought through where a lot of work has been done by very good minds. I very much enjoyed listening to Amandla and I very much enjoyed listening to Nasser's comments about the two brilliant women in his state who did so much work to make things happen in Kaduna. And if I can borrow from Africa's greatest musician and borrow from his comments, Fela Anikulakpo Kuti, we must have no arrangements. What we need is solid work in the public interest. I want to take us back to the original theme of this series, which Teresa so splendidly puts together. And that was the theme of leadership, because if there's one thing that is so obvious and is at the heart of this, is that if we are going to overcome the challenge that we have, and it's the greatest challenge we have had since the partition back in 1884, it's going to be leadership. And in this respect, we can't blame the colonial powers as the excuse of our problem if we fail to act. And I don't really think that we can blame China, though some countries are trying to do that. How we succeed, whether we succeed, is really going to come down to the quality of leadership that is exhibited in the coming years. And that's why I thought that Teresa was brilliant in putting together this series focused on leadership. Now, what do I mean by leadership? And what is central to leadership? First, I think, is that any political leader at this time has got to outline a very, very clear vision of where he's taking this country to. He's got to explain how he sees the problem. He's got to explain how he analyzes it. And he's got to explain to people regularly what solutions he has. Now he's got to do that for two reasons. He's first got to mobilize a concerned, a worried, a scared population behind a series of tough actions. And in addition to that, he's got to, in a sense, display to all of them that he understands and he knows what he's talking about. People want to be led by people who they think know more about things than themselves and they want to follow them. And he's got to communicate that and give them confidence. Now, for some of the students who are here, who, I, who will be taking a course I teach in Africa next year, I'd like to commend to you to all read the speech made by the president of Uganda, Yoweri Museveni. Now, I know that in, in referring to one African head of state who did a great speech, I probably upset 45 other heads of states, but I think that the speech that he made at the outset of this, where he laid out the problem and what he sees the solution to was a very good speech and it should be read by people. To the extent that our immune systems are governed by how emotionally content one is, a great speech by a good leader helps improve your immune system and that it gives you a sense that yes, we as a nation, we can overcome it. 
The next thing I think leadership must do is it's got to outline in very clear terms a series of steps that have to be taken for us to get to that destination and for us to achieve that vision. Otherwise, it's just another dream that somebody comes up with. And those practical steps being outlined of central importance. Then he's got to put together a team of very competent people across the ethnic divide of Africa, across religions, across income groups, who can demonstrate that they can get things done. And he and the leadership has to, without any hesitation, fire, sack, dismiss those individuals who clearly cannot make the grade. In, an, in a time at which, or on an issue on which, hundreds of thousands of lives are at stake, there simply can't be room for anybody who is not up to that grade. But I go back again and again, mental effort, research work, serious analysis, informing outstanding leadership is the route that we have to take. Now, in the coming years, African leaders will fall into two groups. And I all hope that they fall into the first group. They will either be those who are part of the solution and have their names written on the walls of glory as people who at the moment when Africa needed them led. And of them, it will be said for generations to come that it was when they were in office, it was when they led that the renewal of Africa started. And I hope that all of them are in that category. There will also be those, sadly, and I'm sure there'll be a few, who don't come up to the mark. And in fact, will be part of the problem. And as a result of a failure to lead, hundreds of thousands of people will die. We should be very explicit about the consequences of failed leadership. In their case, for a hundred years to come, their names will be written on the wall of shame. Now, for each one of us on this talk today, we are all in our separate ways, we are leaders. We may not be leaders at a national level or at a provincial level, but we are leaders in our community. And I think it is the historic responsibility of each and every one of us to make extraordinary efforts to provide extraordinary leadership at our own levels to supplement the leadership that we hopefully get at the national level so that we can look back at this period as a time at which Africa faced an enormous challenge but if, but in the words of our African-American brothers, they said, we shall overcome, and we did. Thank you very much. Theresa. Well, I'm just sorry that this is a virtual conference so that we can't see all the people clapping and giving you a standing ovation, Hakeem. That was a wonderful set of closing remarks. Thank you for the special guests.
the Vice President of Nigeria, Osim Badro. Thank you for bringing Asim Kwaja, the Director of International Development at Harvard University. And thank you for bringing the President of Ghana, President Akufu Addo, whose chief advisors I see are still with us on this call, even though he had to walk into a cabinet meeting. I see that the President's office has listened to this conversation intently and said that it was very useful for them as they formulate policy for Ghana. Um, and thank you for you. At this time, I'd like to thank the media partners who have helped to publicize this event, and they will have much of this content available on their websites. We thank Mail and Guardian, Ventures Africa, Africa Investor, African Leadership Magazine, Capital out of Ethiopia, She Leads Africa, iAfrica, and the Africa Press Organization. In particular, I'd like to thank our platinum sponsor who has supported this effort um, unequivocally. We are very grateful to Standard Bank for their support. We have three fantastic silver sponsors, FSDH Merchant Bank, General Electric, Trade and Development Bank out of Kenya. And our bronze sponsor is KPMG. And once again, I'd like to give a special thank you to Hakim Belosagi for putting together what was just a spectacular discussion today. I think it will go down in the annals of history as one of the most important conversations that took place among African leaders in the public and private sector during COVID-19. Thank you very much, Hakim. Thank you very much. All right, so with that, we conclude today's session. We look forward to seeing you a week from now. Bye-bye.